Over time, our morals and ethics change. In law, language, or science, for example, things that were acceptable 30 years ago can seem unthinkable today. Most of the time, institutions keep up with these changes. But what if you discovered that unimaginable cruelty had been allowed to continue for decades and that your government was funding it in the name of science? What if you alone saw it for what it really was? Would you fight for justice and risk losing your livelihood? Or would you let it pass? After all, everyone else seems to think it's okay. Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. From the woman who revealed the secrets behind Facebook to the man who warned the world about UFO sightings the Pentagon tried to hide. In this episode, we tell the story of Peter Buxton the man who took on the American medical establishment to blow the whistle on the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study. This is a story that will cast a shadow over American medicine for years to come. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. In 1932, the Great Depression was devastating the poor rural community in Macon County, eastern Alabama. But 26-year-old Charlie Pollard was doing all right. Other families in the mostly black area were struggling to stay afloat, particularly since the government grain rations were only available to whites. But Charlie's family didn't need the rations. They owned a large farm outside the town of Nottasalga, which Charlie was already taking over from his aging father. The young man had big plans, too. He'd recently gotten married and had a young daughter. With his family growing, he wanted to expand the farm. His local church also needed to be rebuilt, and Charlie wanted to help make that happen, especially since so many of his neighbors were struggling. 
In fact, living conditions in the area weren't much better than they had been 60 years ago, before slavery had been abolished. There had been some progress. Less than 10 miles away, the first university for black Americans had been opened, Booker T. Washington's renowned Tuskegee Institute. But for most of the community, getting a place there was an impossible dream. Many still earned very little working in the fields and were largely at the mercy of white landowners. Jim Crow laws kept things that way, as did violent beatings, arson attacks, and lynchings. As if that weren't enough, if anyone fell ill, medical care was almost impossible to access. Even if someone had the means to travel all the way to a doctor, it was far too expensive, even for fairly well-off families like Charlie's. So when flyers started circulating, promising physicals for men with the potential for free medical care for six months, Charlie was intrigued. He'd never had much real health care himself, but also his father was getting old, and it'd be good to get him checked out. After some tests at the town schoolhouse, the doctors told Charlie and his father that, like many of the men in their community, they both had something called bad blood. They didn't really know what that meant. They both felt pretty healthy, so it couldn't be too serious. But they were told that this condition entitled them to special treatment. For the next six months, they would get free medical care, free transport, and free food on the days they saw the doctors. To top it all off, their burial costs would be taken care of too. Charlie and his father accepted this offer. And over the next few weeks, the doctors gave them regular physical examinations and x-rays. After six months, they were told that the initiative was going to be extended, so they'd get free medical care well into the future, which was fine with them. As part of the extended treatment, they were given various new ointments, tonics, and pills to take, although Charlie wasn't really sure what they were supposed to do. Over the years, he didn't think too much about his bad blood. Sure, he had the odd twinge some days, like most people, but generally felt healthy. Most of his energy he focused on his farm, which he expanded to 160 acres and filled with crops and livestock. He was the first black man he knew to own a mechanical cotton picker and used his carpentry skills to build a new house for his family and fix the church. He became a pillar of the community. The only time he gave any real thought to his condition was when a nurse named Eunice Rivers came by his house to check up on him and his father. Once a year or so, she'd drive them over to the Tuskegee Institute Hospital for checkups and treatment with the government doctors who'd come to town. Sometimes the pills they gave him seemed to ease his aches and pains, but other times, the treatments made things far worse. Like the time they did a painful spinal tap that left him bedridden for days, in far worse shape than he'd been before. As unhappy as Charlie was about that, he tried to tell himself that he just had to trust the doctors. After all, if it weren't for them, he wouldn't even know about his bad blood. And yet, as time passed, Charlie noticed a change in many of his neighbors. Many of the men he knew who were in the program were struggling. Some had developed nasty skin lesions. 
Others had serious heart issues. Others still seemed to be losing their grip on reality. Some were so weak and in so much pain that they couldn't work on their farms, and some were dying. All Charlie could think was that if the treatment was supposed to fix their bad blood, then it wasn't working. It wasn't until two decades later that someone outside the study, far away from Macon County, would also realize that the treatment wasn't working. In the mid-1960s, the United States was in turmoil. The civil rights movement was in full swing, with black Americans campaigning for equal rights and an end to segregation, even as white supremacists and the establishment fought violently against them. President John F. Kennedy had recently been assassinated, destroying forever the sense of security many Americans had once felt. The unpopular Vietnam War was raging, and young conscripted men took to the streets to rebel, while the women's liberation movement fought for equal rights and bodily autonomy for women. For many people, the country seemed to be in a battle for its soul. Nowhere was this turmoil more obvious than in San Francisco, California, the heart of radical 60s counterculture. It was there that, in 1966, 28-year-old Peter Buxton was working for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as the CDC. He was a venereal disease interviewer and investigator. His job was to track down people who had sexual contact with patients who had syphilis or gonorrhea. Once he found them, he made sure they got tested and treated. He was basically a PI for STIs. It was a tough job, but Peter enjoyed it. He'd done a stint in Vietnam as an army medic, where he'd gotten some training in psychiatric social work, and this was a lot more straightforward. These venereal diseases could be gruesome, but once they were diagnosed, they could be treated pretty easily. Basically, Peter liked talking to people, and he liked helping people, and he especially liked a challenge. He'd only been on the job for a few months, but he'd already become known as a tenacious and dedicated investigator. Peter had been born in Czechoslovakia just before World War II, and he was still a baby when his Jewish father and Catholic mother decided it would be safest to move to the U.S. He grew up mostly in rural Oregon and went on to study history in graduate school. When he ended up in San Francisco, it was purely because he thought this health investigative work sounded useful and interesting. Peter wasn't exactly the poster child for 1960s San Francisco, though. As a libertarian and gun enthusiast, he wasn't really part of the alternative activist culture, but that didn't bother him at all. Peter was comfortable being a bit of an odd man out, even among his friends. He generally approved of the protests, though. His parents and his education had instilled in him a strong sense of justice. And so when Peter overheard something odd in the break room at work, he just couldn't let it go. It was a crisp fall day in 1966, and Peter was halfway through his lunch when some of his colleagues came in chatting. An older man, who'd been a public health service officer for a number of years, was telling a story he'd heard while working near Tuskegee, Alabama. 
The story was about a patient in his 60s who was severely mentally unstable. His family had taken him to a new doctor who had quickly diagnosed the patient with long-term syphilis, which had caused the mental problems. The doctor prescribed penicillin, the standard cure for the disease. But the story didn't end there. The public health service officer said that when the CDC and the County Medical Society heard what the doctor had done, they were angry. Apparently, this patient was a participant from one of their studies, a study that forbade the treatment of syphilis. Peter wondered if he'd misheard. He knew how bad syphilis could be if left untreated. Why would the CDC want that? When he asked his colleague for more details, the older man confirmed the story. There was a long-running study in Tuskegee, Alabama, that was tracking the effects of untreated syphilis in around 600 black men. As far as he knew, it was still going on. It was supposed to be quite well-respected. Peter didn't understand. Here he was, spending his days tracking down people with syphilis in order to treat them. And over in Alabama, they had rounded up all the men who had it and were choosing not to treat them. Even worse, they were letting the men pass it on to their partners and children. Peter's colleagues packed up and went back to work, but he couldn't stop thinking about those men in Alabama. How could they have signed up to not be treated for a curable disease? Coming up, Peter is horrified by what he discovers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Now, back to the story. In the autumn of 1966, Peter Buxton heard a rumor that the U.S. Public Health Service was deliberately not treating a group of black men in Alabama for syphilis. Convinced there was more to the story, Peter got in touch with CDC headquarters. He requested copies of all the published reports about this study. His excuse was that he had to write regular reports about venereal disease issues as part of his job. It was a flimsy cover story, inasmuch as he was supposed to be writing about the work he was actually doing, not a study happening on the other side of the country. But in the end, it didn't matter. The CDC sent him everything he wanted, no questions asked. As Peter dug into the documents he received, he could barely believe what he was reading. His colleague had been telling the truth, and then some. The Tuskegee Syphilis Study had its origins in the late 1920s. In the wake of World War I, syphilis was a major public health issue across the country. But Southern Black communities were hit particularly hard, 
thanks to their lack of health care services, and it was 20 years before penicillin would become widely used as a cheap and easy cure. At the time, the U.S. Public Health Service was struggling financially, so they asked for funding from the Tuskegee Institute and a private philanthropy foundation. This funding was used to send officers out into the communities across the South to conduct a mass survey of blood tests. In Macon County, Alabama, one of the most impoverished areas in the South, the results were horrifying. They discovered that 36% of the black population had syphilis markers in their blood. Of those, 62% were congenital cases, meaning the disease had been inherited from their parents. Something had to be done. Unfortunately, the only known way to cure syphilis at the time was with very expensive courses of heavy metals and poisons, like mercury and arsenic. Much like chemotherapy, the idea was to nuke the body and hope it killed the disease, too. It did work, sometimes, but it could take more than a year, with side effects like tooth loss and kidney failure. At first, the Public Health Service tried to use this unreliable treatment in Macon County. With their funding still limited, the rollout went about as badly as could be expected. And when the Great Depression hit soon after, they lost their funding entirely. By early 1932, syphilis study and treatment in Macon County was over. Or it would have been, if several public health service doctors hadn't seen an opportunity. They might not have the funding to treat people right now, but they could perhaps get that money in the future if they proved that they needed it. Since they had all the contacts already, they could do a quick study over the next six months looking at how long-term, untreated syphilis affected black men. Now, it's worth noting that untreated syphilis had been studied before, elsewhere. The only reason the doctors were interested in repeating the research in these black, southern communities was because in the 19th century, a white doctor had decided that syphilis affected black and white people differently. His deeply racist view was that white people were smarter. So he thought that syphilis was more likely to attack their brains and neural systems. And because he also incorrectly thought that black people were stronger and more physical, he theorized that syphilis was more likely to attack their hearts and cardiovascular systems. The public health service doctors had heard this theory. They also believed that syphilis wasn't as deadly and debilitating for black people as for white. Perhaps this study could help them find out why. When Peter looked up from the documents, the street outside his window was dark, and he was the last one left in the office. The room was lit only by dim lamplight. Peter was disgusted by what he'd read. In diverse San Francisco, he'd seen syphilis attack people of all backgrounds equally. It was a notoriously creative disease, but it did not discriminate by race. To set the study up, the public health service doctors enlisted the support of the Tuskegee Institute's medical department and its hospital, where subjects would be seen. The hospital, in turn, hired a young black public health nurse called Eunice Rivers to help manage the study. 
Then, the white doctors set out to recruit local men like Charlie Pollard for the study. They put out the word that they were offering free treatment for so-called bad blood, which they saw as a euphemism for syphilis. Though the reported numbers vary, they likely recruited a little over 600 men for the study. Approximately two-thirds of these had syphilis markers in their blood, while around one-third of them didn't and were designated the study's control subjects. Despite what they were told, the men did not receive any treatment. The whole point was to study untreated syphilis. So while some of the men were given aspirin, sugar pills, and various pain medications, it was nothing that would affect the disease. Aside from pain relief, any effects the men did notice were merely placebo. After six months, in early 1933, the observation study was ready to wrap up as planned. The public health service doctors had gotten a lot of information to take back with them. But then they hesitated. As far as they were concerned, this was a cheap and useful study. It was unlikely these men were going to get any treatment for syphilis anytime soon, considering the depression. And they figured that syphilis wasn't that painful or fatal in black people anyway. So why shouldn't they just continue the study and see what happened to the participants? And so that's what they did for decades. Once a year, public health service doctors would come down to Macon County. And Nurse Rivers would bring the men to the hospital at the Tuskegee Institute for their checkups. For nearly all the men, it was the only medical attention they ever received, and they were understandably grateful for it. Peter felt sick as he read through the doctor's notes on the participants. The language that some of them used was racist and dehumanizing, labeling the community ignorant and promiscuous. There seemed to be no regard for duty of care. Despite this, the study had somehow become a respected institution in the public health service. Peter recognized some of the names of the doctors writing the reports. Many of the men who'd started it had gone on to the most powerful public health positions in the U.S., and new doctors took over without questioning. It was touted as good science. Peter disagreed. Penicillin had been widely used as a cure for syphilis since 1943, 11 years into the study. But he saw in the reports that in the 22 years since, the doctors had gone out of their way to make sure that the participants weren't treated with penicillin. In fact, it seemed like the doctors were simply waiting for the men to die in order to study their bodies via autopsy. All Peter could think of were the stories of the inhumane medical experiments at Auschwitz that came out in the Nuremberg trials. These sorts of things weren't supposed to happen now in the United States. Everything he'd ever learned about medicine in the U.S. was aimed at healing a patient, not allowing them to suffer. Peter had to believe that the current chiefs at the CDC didn't realize the extent of this unethical study. So much had changed over the last 30 years since it had started, in medical science, in civil rights, in politics. If they knew what was going on, they'd have put a stop to it. Anyone with a moral compass would. It was up to Peter to show them what was happening. 
Working late, night after night, he wrote up a report and gave it to his boss. He made it clear that this should go up the ranks immediately. If and when word got out to the public, it would damage the CDC's reputation. Peter believed in the work that they did and worried that if people heard about the Tuskegee study, they wouldn't trust the organization anymore. Later that week, Peter's boss called him into his office. He was clearly on edge, nervous in a way Peter hadn't seen him before. He'd read the report and he urged Peter to drop it. He reminded Peter that the men in the study were volunteers. They could leave whenever they wanted. It really wasn't that big of a deal. Peter would only cause trouble for their whole office if he kept barking up this tree. He gestured to a family photo on his desk. He had a wife and kids to provide for. Tuskegee was a well-established study that had launched the careers of a number of major public health figures. He didn't want to make any enemies. Why did Peter care that much anyway? He wasn't affected personally by the study. And if he continued his one-man crusade, he could lose his job and his future in public health. He was putting a stop to Peter's investigation, and that was that. He pointed to the door. The meeting was over. Fine. Peter would go around him then. In late 1966, Peter wrote a letter to the head of the CDC's venereal disease division. He laid out his ethical concerns and demanded to know if the public health body was still performing autopsies on the study participants. He didn't hear anything back. Until one day, a senior CDC official happened to be visiting the San Francisco office and stopped by Peter's desk. Peter noticed his boss eyeing them from the other side of the room. The officer told him that the head of the division had read Peter's letter and had asked him to speak to Peter while he was in town. Hopeful, Peter reiterated his concerns, but instead of agreeing with him, the officer was confused. Everyone at the CDC thought the study was doing good and valuable work. He didn't understand Peter's moral qualms. He insisted that if anything, the CDC had a moral obligation to make it a success for the sake of the men who had already died in the study. By the time the officer left, Peter was only more frustrated. He wasn't going to let this go, but he was starting to realize that it wouldn't be easy. Peter had marked himself as a troublemaker. Now that his boss knew he'd gone over his head, Peter's work life started to become more difficult and isolated. He knew he'd ruffled feathers and that the CDC was coming after him. And then, in March 1967, around six months after he'd first learned about the study, Peter was summoned to CDC headquarters for a meeting. It was time for a reckoning. Coming up, Peter takes matters into his own hands. Now, back to the story. In March 1967, Peter Buxton flew across the country from San Francisco to Atlanta, Georgia, on the orders of the CDC. He'd been kicking up a fuss for months about the Tuskegee syphilis study, and now he was finally going to get to argue his case in front of the people who could make a difference. But the meeting didn't exactly go the way he anticipated. 
When he arrived at CDC headquarters, he was ushered into a large, imposing conference room in the basement of the building. Inside, he was told to take a seat at the far end of a long table. Several stony faces glared back at him from the other end. The CDC had brought in their top men to put this young agitator in his place. One of them, a man named Dr. John Cutler, was especially angry at this unruly schoolboy. He told Peter that the study was providing them with invaluable data. They couldn't possibly stop now. But Peter pushed back, undaunted. He argued that the data wasn't actually that valuable. He'd seen a number of errors in it. For example, the reports showed that some of the participants had actually been given small doses of penicillin for other ailments. If the study wanted to show untreated syphilis, then its results were worthless. But the bad science was nothing compared to the ethical issues, he insisted. The men participating in the study had been lied to. They hadn't given their informed consent, required of medical studies since the 1950s. What's more, they thought they'd been receiving treatment, when all this time they'd been at risk of unwittingly infecting their sexual partners and passing the disease on to their children. But the older doctors didn't seem to hear him. From the other end of the table, they belittled Peter's lack of medical knowledge. Their raised voices echoed around the room's vaulted ceilings as they reminded him that the long-running study was one of the country's most important public health works. He simply didn't understand the issues and was putting his nose where it didn't belong. By the time Peter was on the plane back to San Francisco, he felt wrung out. He'd taken a hammering, but at least he lodged a complaint that the rest of the CDC would see. He still had hope that someone in the organization would take things seriously. The next day, Peter went back to work hoping for news, a phone call or a letter that said the study was being investigated. But days turned to weeks, weeks turned to months, and no message came. By March 1968, Peter had had enough. Eighteen months had passed since he'd first heard about the Tuskegee study, and he was sick of waiting for someone else to take action. Besides, since he'd kicked up a fuzz, his colleagues barely spoke to him. He had to find a way to command more respect. One afternoon, he packed up his papers, plants, and family photos and walked out of his office for the last time. Two and a half thousand miles away, in Tuskegee, the study participants were still being kept in the dark. Charlie Pollard, now 62, was still getting free medical care from nurse Eunice Rivers. At 69 years old, she was just as dedicated to the study as she'd been when they first met 36 years ago. But Charlie's community wasn't thriving. Over the years, he had, of course, lost friends. It was part of aging. But they seemed to be dying younger than he expected. In fact, of the 600 men originally recruited for the study, only 70 or 80 were still alive. 
and the mental illnesses, skin conditions, and heart problems they'd suffered from over the years had never really gone away. Then there were the issues their wives were having. Several of the older women had developed painful arthritis, and he'd heard that some of the younger women were giving birth to stillborn babies. In the wider community, rumors were spreading. People were dropping out of the study, but Charlie still felt fine. He was grateful for Nurse Rivers, the yearly checkups, and the doctors at the hospital. They told him they were looking after him and his community, and he believed them. Back in San Francisco, Peter, newly unemployed, had enrolled in law school at the University of California. He hoped that it would give him the knowledge he needed to put a stop to the study and understand the changes his country was going through. On the streets outside, tension was still building. Every week there was something new to protest. And then, on the 4th of April, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. The United States had already had a tumultuous few years. Dr. King's assassination only fanned the flames. As concerned as he was for the country, Peter saw the turmoil as another opportunity to get the CDC to listen to him. Though he was no longer working for the Public Health Service, he wrote another letter to the CDC headquarters. This time, he highlighted the country's racial divisions. Every man in the study was black. Whether or not the CDC saw it as racist, to the outside observer, the study sure looked like the U.S. government had been experimenting on black men for more than 35 years. He argued that the study had the potential to make a bad situation a lot worse. When the CDC officials received his letter, they had to admit he had a point. They replied and told him that his concerns had been taken into consideration. While they stubbornly maintained that the study itself wasn't problematic, they realized they might have a PR problem on their hands. They decided it would make them look better if they reconnected with the local medical community at the Tuskegee Institute and in Macon County. If they were seen to have the support of black medical stakeholders, surely no one could say they were racist. Plus, it provided an opportunity to revitalize the study, which had been running on autopilot for the last decade or so. The CDC also brought in a handful of medical experts to do a review. Although Peter was disappointed to learn that only one or two of them raised concerns and that they were quickly overruled. In their reply to Peter, the CDC confirmed that they had addressed all possible complaints and they intended to continue the study. Peter vented his frustration by telling anyone who would listen about the Tuskegee study. His friends, his law school classmates, every journalist and government official he met. For the most part, people shrugged and ignored him. It seemed complicated, and maybe he didn't have all the facts. One of his law school professors said he'd never get justice anyway. The statute of limitations had already run out. Peter felt like he was banging his head against a brick wall. Every day the study was allowed to continue, men were getting sicker and sicker and passing it on to their families. Someone, somewhere, had to take him seriously. 
But it would be another three years before that would happen. And all the while, political tension was growing across the country. In June 1972, the Watergate scandal broke. And the last vestiges of the American people's trust in government shattered. A few weeks later, Peter was at dinner with some friends. Once again, he brought up the story of the Tuskegee syphilis study. He touted it as yet another long-running example of bad behavior by people in positions of power. All of his friends had heard the story before, but this time, in the wake of Watergate, it seemed fresh and important. One of his friends, an Associated Press journalist named Edith Letterer, asked if he had any documentation. Peter could have laughed. He'd waited years for that question. Over the next few days, the two of them went through the reports he'd collected over the years, along with the letters he'd exchanged with CDC officials. Edith immediately knew there was a story here. This was a big deal. She sent the details to her editor, who passed all of Peter's reports and paperwork to one of their top correspondents in D.C., Jean Heller. One look at the papers and Jean knew she'd barely have to do any reporting of her own. The story had fallen into her lap. On June 25, 1972, the story ran on the front page of the Washington Star. The next day, it was on the front of the New York Times. The entire country was talking about it. Reporters showed up in Macon County looking for people to talk to. Public Health Service and CDC officials suddenly found themselves scrambling to release statements. Peter couldn't believe that after years of being mocked, harassed, and derided, people were finally taking his story seriously. And in Tuskegee, Alabama, 66-year-old Charlie Pollard was walking into a lawyer's office. Over the last 40 years, Charlie had become more than a pillar of his community. He was now also an officer in the Macon County Democratic Club and a leader of the local civil rights organization. Through his work, he'd become friendly with Fred Gray, the renowned civil rights attorney who'd represented Rosa Parks. The day before, a reporter showed up on his doorstep and informed him that he'd been part of a syphilis study organized by the Public Health Service for the last 40 years. Charlie hadn't even realized he had syphilis. All that time, the doctors had never told him what his bad blood really was. Luckily for Charlie, his syphilis seemed to have been dormant over the years, and he'd stayed in good health. But he'd seen his neighbors suffer— He realized now that people who could have lived long, healthy lives with a simple course of penicillin had been denied that future. They'd made guinea pigs out of all of them. Charlie wanted justice for his friends, so he recruited Fred Gray, the best of the best, to represent him. The ensuing cases and lawsuits captivated the country, and took years to resolve. In addition to Charlie Pollard and some of his fellow survivors, Fred Gray made sure that Peter and other whistleblowing public health officials were called to testify before Congress. Thanks to Fred and Charlie's tireless work, the survivors of the study found some justice. 
1974, those who were still alive were awarded a share of $10 million from the government. All survivors and remaining descendants were also given free health care for life. By the time the hearings and lawsuits were over, American medicine had changed forever. The Tuskegee study was stopped for good after having run for 40 years. Strict new guidelines were instituted for medical studies. From that point on, all research participants had to be made fully aware of what a study involved, and experiments would be reviewed regularly by external boards to make sure they were safe and ethical. But was this enough to make amends to the participants in the Tuskegee study? By the time it was shut down, many of the participants had passed away, whether from syphilis-related illnesses, other diseases, or simply old age. It would be another 23 years before the survivors were given a formal apology. In 1997, President Bill Clinton invited Charlie Pollard and the other remaining survivors to the White House, along with their families. He told them that he knew no power on earth could give them back the loved ones they had lost, or make up for the pain they had suffered. He acknowledged that what the United States government did was shameful, and he apologized. They were words Charlie Pollard had waited years to hear. In 1999, Tuskegee University, formerly known as the Tuskegee Institute, opened the country's first Center for Bioethics, a department dedicated to helping researchers run their studies ethically and humanely. But the shadow of the Tuskegee syphilis study remains. Some of the surviving participants and their descendants were ashamed to learn they had syphilis, While most people understood that it was extremely common at the time, no one wanted their family name associated with a sexually transmitted disease. The wider black community was angry, too. Many thought Tuskegee was just one more in a long line of racist and abusive experiments pushed by white doctors. It was more evidence that doctors and clinical trials could not be trusted. And as a result, life expectancy for black men in America actually went down after the study was exposed and ended. To help redress these wrongs, descendants of the men in the study are using their platform to encourage black Americans to get the medical help they need. Most recently, some of them have been working to increase COVID-19 vaccine uptake in black communities, which have been especially hard hit by the deadly virus. As for Peter Buxton, he too has continued to use his platform to advocate for medical ethics and to make sure that the facts about the Tuskegee syphilis study aren't forgotten. He has received a handful of honors in recent years, but he doesn't put much stock in them. His name is often left out of the stories of the study, and he's fine with that. Instead, he focuses on living his own life and insists that he merely did what he felt was quite obviously the right thing. And yet, for 40 years, almost no one else seemed to see it as obvious. Hundreds of people died, unaware that they had been left to get sicker and sicker by their own government. It took one person's persistence and determination in the face of a much more powerful institution to change the tide. Thanks for listening. 
You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on the Tuskegee syphilis study, amongst the many sources we used, we found Bad Blood by James H. Jones extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Kate Thorman. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mix, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. 